Good morning. You are listening to your community radio station, KBOO Portland. I'm Patricia Kohlberg, and I'll be your host this morning for the Old Mole Variety Hour. Every Monday morning, the moles bring you views, reviews, and interviews from a socialist, feminist, anti-racist perspective. We focus not just on what's wrong, but what can be done. Toward that end, we have for you this morning a discussion with economist Mary King and Opal environmental justice organizer Ellie Gluhusky about fareless public transportation. While other cities like Kansas City and Olympia have abolished fares on public transport, TriMet is poised to approve a substantial fare hike in the Portland metro area. It's a bad idea. Mary and Ellie will tell us why getting rid of fares would be better for Portland residents as well as for our environment. The remainder of our show this morning, we're going to get the jump on Black History Month, which begins the day after tomorrow. This year's theme for the annual recognition of African American history is Black Resistance. Telling the history is already an act of resistance. Moreover, telling the history in today's current environment invites the destructive wrath of those who are invested in maintaining the myths, in particular, the white supremacist myths of U.S. history. Book mole Larry Bolden takes a dive into a novel written a quarter century ago by famed black crime novelist Walter Mosley, who uses the genre to chronicle the lives of blacks in urban Los Angeles. He paints word portraits of flawed and ordinary people struggling to wrest control of their lives in an environment where choices are limited and fraught with danger and compromise. Bill Resnick will close our show today with a wide-ranging discussion with Malik Mia, a black labor activist and author. They talk about the nature of institutional racism and how only mass movements can disrupt the system's that perpetuate racism. Now I'd like to turn to public transportation in Portland and a very important question. Should TriMet increase their fares or should they abolish them entirely? I have with me today on the Old Mole two transportation activists to talk about this question. Mary King is an economist retired from the faculty of Portland State University. Since leaving PSU, she's been advocating for things we can accomplish locally to create a more inclusive, equitable, and prosperous economy. And she often writes them up in a column in Street Roots. On November 22nd, she published a piece in Street Roots that lays out the case for making public transportation free. Also with us this morning is Ellie Gluhusky, the new campaign organizer for Opal Environmental Justice Oregon. She got her official start in community organizing in her beloved college town, Missoula, Montana, where she focused on movement building primarily around housing and environmental justice and voting rights. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she switched from organizing to direct service work to help community members secure housing. She is thrilled to be back in an organizer role and eager to continue advocating for and with her community. Welcome to KBOO and to the Old Mole Variety Hour, Mary King and Ellie 
Gluhowski. Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Opal recognized early on that transportation justice is a uniquely intersectional (laughs) issue that impacts environmental and housing justice, as well as safety and equity in our community. Opal has built relationships and movements with the folks in our community most impacted by injustices in the transit system. Opal is the only organization in the Portland metro area that is organizing around the issue of transit justice. Now, the Board of TriMet has already voted for a fair increase. They're currently seeking public feedback on their proposal. Opal is launching a campaign focused on defeating the proposed fare increase and is pushing instead for the implementation of a completely fareless system. So Mary and Ellie, I'd like to start with the obvious question. Why should we go fareless? What are the benefits? Yeah, I'm happy to start. Well, yeah, thank you again so much for having us. I'm really excited to talk about this issue, especially because I don't know if a lot of people know that this is happening in Portland right now. Um, So public transportation, first and foremost, is a public service, similar to, you know, the post office, the library, public school, et cetera. And everyone is entitled to have access to those services. But since TriMet uses fares, that public service ends up not actually being accessible to everyone because many can't afford to use it. So for mass transit to be accessible for all, it really needs to be fareless. Um, Through the use of fares, TriMet wields power over the community and effectively determines who can and cannot ride transit. And often the folks who rely on transit the most, namely, yeah, low income and houseless folks, BIPOC and LGBTQ plus communities, youth, people with disabilities, and so forth, are the folks who end up not really being able to access and use public transportation. And I think it's a misconception, but TriMet is not a corporate business, even though they may act like it, they are a public service agency. Yeah, just like, you know, the use of other public services, the public still pays for TriMet to operate before folks even step up to the fare box. TriMet levied a payroll tax starting in 2018 that takes a percentage out of TriMet district employees. So that means that, you know, when TriMet asks for fares, they're effectively double dipping into our wallets. Do you want to like jump in? Sure. I would just say it's really an issue of inclusion and equity, as Ellie's talking about. Going fareless weakens the school to prison pipeline if you get rid of criminalizing people over whether they've paid their fare. It We have better air quality, less congestion, fewer emissions per passenger mile. There are, you know, it builds community. I met my neighbors riding the bus, you know. And, you know, the UN charter says people need to have a right to the city. And transportation is absolutely important to that. And as Ellie's saying, it leads to jobs. It leads to all kinds of opportunity. So it's, it's really important Portland would not be the first locality to implement a fare-free transit system. Can you tell us about other places where they've done that and what's happened? We know the most about Kansas City. We've been able to meet with people working in the Kansas City transit system and talked about what they've found. And they've also done studies. 
of their passengers. So they surveyed riders after they went fareless, and they found out that their riders uh, are able to shop for food more often. They see their healthcare providers more easily or more often. They uh, have been enabled to get or to hold a job. They started to feel like the city cared about them more. They also did several studies ahead of time to um, assess what the impact would be. And some of those impacts, they show that going fareless increases ridership and that reduces carbon emissions. So all the climate impacts. It also has climate impacts and walkability impacts in a city because it facilitates more dense development, which is what we're going for in Portland. We're hoping we can talk to Corvallis and Olympia soon and get more detail on what's happening in those cities, but they are fareless and a hundred cities around the world are fareless. Wow. A hundred. Did you have anything to add to that, Ellie? Yeah. I mean, I I think Mary covered it really well, but I'll just add to like the, the thing, the main benefit that we've really seen across places that have successfully gone fareless is that in a fareless system, everyone who needs and wants to use transit actually is able to access it. So in places like Kansas City, we saw like a huge increase in ridership of people who cannot afford to pay fares. So houseless folks, low-income folks, um, anyone who, yeah, had been wanting to use public transit but had never been able to afford it, were now able to use it. Yeah, the other benefits that Mary listed of, yeah, lowering our carbon emissions, lowering congestion, increasing ridership, of course, those are also important, but I think it really can be summed up into that main benefit of people just would be able to access it more. Well, yeah, and as a physician, a retired physician, I know that all of that would also lead to fewer emissions that are harming people's health, like the the particulate matter that comes out of the tailpipe. So I know that's uh, also a co-benefit of getting more cars off the road. But, you know, the other question that comes up is, well, isn't this going to cost too much? And the answer to that is easy. It's no. And partly because that's because fares are not that big a part of the TriMet budget. They're only a sixth of the budget. 60% of the budget is coming from the payroll tax on everybody employed in the TriMet district. So, and the second biggest contributor is the federal government. If we look at the budget for 2019, before the pandemic hit, when ridership was at its peak, we only need $120 million a year to cover fares. And that is not that hard. Um, Opal asked Representative Confam if she would ask the Legislative Revenue Office to estimate what we could raise with small increases on the payroll tax only on salaries above 200,000 and then a little bit more above $400,000 a year. And we could easily raise enough to not only replace the fares, but to also uh, probably increase some wages and working conditions at TriMet where they're having trouble hiring, and also to potentially accelerate the electrification of the bus fleet. That's the first point. We can easily cover that amount. We've got the resources here in this community. 
But there are other things to think about, and that is there are cost savings because you quit having to purchase and maintain these uh, fare machines. You uh, quit having to administer your discount program. You quit having to have fare enforcement. So you save a lot there, so much so that the city of Olympia actually went fareless, partly because they were looking at an expensive upgrade to their fare machines and said, why are we doing this? We'd be better off fareless and save the money too. And the last thing that I would say is people don't understand that it would also impact the local economy. And Kansas City did a study of, well, the University of Missouri, Kansas City did it for them, the economics center there, to say what's the impact of going fareless. And surprisingly enough, in some ways, the impact of people spending, shifting their spending from paying for fares then goes into other local goods and services. So it creates more jobs and uh, higher standard of living. People are able to afford more things and increases tax revenues. So it's an investment in the local economy in ways that need to be more talked about. Did you want to add anything to that, Ellie? Um, I guess, yeah, what TriMet leadership needs to be doing is shifting their over-reliance on fares in their budget in general and shifting towards, yeah, like Mary is saying, these other funding options like increasing and making the payroll tax more equitable or, you know, going for more stiff funding, partnering with like local businesses, going the grant route. There's no, as far as I can see, it doesn't make sense if TriMet is considering the long-term financial stability of the agency. It doesn't make sense that they would exclusively be looking at a fair increase to make that happen. Um, so yeah, they just need to make meaningful steps towards eliminating fares altogether, not relying on fair rev- revenue more. Well, here's another maybe a little thornier question. TriMed, I think you'll agree with me, is not now providing a quality service to the people who are most in need in terms of where they uh, have their bus routes, the frequency, the some would say overinvestment in trains serving suburban communities rather than less advantaged urban communities that are more in need. Given those issues already with TriMet service, how would a fareless initiative affect those problems? I think actually the reducing of a fare people show increases ridership, which increases ownership of any public service and interest in people in making it better. I think there's a strong interest in making it better. I'm I'm not sure I totally agree with you about the suburban lines. I know there's the thinking about Southwest where they haven't yet expanded, but you know, the orange line that goes deep into outer Southeast really serves a very mixed population, you know, with uh, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people with lower incomes and, really, I think, expands access for senior and youth in those areas. So so I'm not sure that we quite have a, as much of a suburban-urban divide with transit as you might in other communities, particularly in thinking about the east side. Well, that's good to know. 
let's shift over a little bit to talking about the organizing of the campaign itself. I'm curious about how Opal plans to uh, launch their campaign. What's your strategy? Um, well, right now, we're obviously in the midst of our campaign to stop TriMet from increasing fares in January 2024. So the first vote on that increase is set to happen in either April or May of this year. So until then, really the most important thing we can do is show up at all of the TriMet board meetings leading up to that vote, as well as um, the public forums that TriMet is hosting during the month of January to give public commentary about how a fare increase would impact us and our families. So a lot of our mobilization work right now is focusing on turning people out for those events. Um, we've been hosting monthly phone banking sessions to turn our members out for those meetings, and I've been providing um, testimony workshops to ensure that folks feel comfortable giving public comment. And then some other things that we're working on, too. Um, yeah, so I'm currently circulating a no fare increase sign on with a list of demands and collecting signatures from our partner organizations. And that letter is going to be presented at the TriMet board meetings leading up to the vote. Um, we're also really showing up in TriMet committee spaces, such as the Transit Equity and Accessibility Committee, to push for formal recommendation to the board to not increase fares. And then finally, um, I'm collaborating a lot with the rest of our organizing team. So I'm working with our youth cohort, the Youth Environmental Justice Alliance, to submit written testimony and give commentary. I'm working with our Bus Riders Union, Bus Riders Unite, to ensure that those members feel able to give public commentary. And then we also are currently recruiting for our Seeding Our Liberation Leadership course, which will have um, a practical component that intersects with our campaign work. So yeah, a lot of our focus right now is obviously on defeating that fare increase vote, but you know, we're also simultaneously pushing for TriMet to go fareless because we see that as like the long-term solution. So that campaign, since that is more of a long-term campaign, is going to be formally um, kicked off um, on Transit Equity Day, which is this February 4th. Um, and then I'll just say one last thing that we're working on in you know the first half of this year. So two of the TriMet directors who sit on the board have terms ending directly after the fare increase vote in May. So Opal is going to be working with our community to find the best candidates for those open positions. And we're going to be working with our partner organizations to start putting pressure on the governor's office to actually appoint our community-backed candidates just to ensure that TriMet leadership is overall more community-informed um, and equitable. So yeah, I just encourage like anyone to reach out to me if they're interested in getting involved in our campaigns through like volunteering, protesting, organizing. We have lots of places to plug in. Have you reached out to the TriMet unions? I am still relatively new in my position, so I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to have many discussions with the transit union, but I have met with one of the members who sits on the executive board of the ATU um, to talk about how how he feels the union feels about the fare increase. And obviously, you know, ATU has not made a formal recommendation yet, but he was letting me know that there's been discussions within the union, obviously, that a fare increase does not is not in the interest of TriMet Labor Force. It would 
you know, only increase conflicts between drivers and riders. It's it's not in the interest of um, TriMet employees to increase fares. But I do know, yeah, Opal is working on getting on the formal executive board monthly meeting agenda, hopefully this month or in February, to seek formal recommendation from the ATU um, about the fare increase. Mary and Ellie, where do you expect pushback? Who's going to oppose the idea, given all the benefits that it would have for our community? Well, I just wanted to say first, before answering that question, who likes it, who people don't always think about? And you really previewed that, Patricia, with talking about doctors. Healthcare organizations appreciate the fact that people can get more to their follow-up appointments. And they started in Kansas City with vets with support from the VA, who really wanted to be seeing people coming back. That's one source, as well as, of course, everybody who works with youth and seniors and people with whose opportunities are reduced by thinking about fares. But as for thinking then about opposition, I think what we've seen in the past few years, especially, is that the Portland Business Alliance has a knee-jerk opposition to taxes and tax increases regardless of the benefits or the high payoff to public investments. They fought universal preschool now in court, hoping to delay us or kill it off. Although that passed universal preschool as preschool for all two to one in this community. So they took on a very oppositional position to what was a very popular concept. And they continued that kind of activity fighting in court the effort for eviction representation for all. They were able to slow them down, but they could not stop them. So they've gathered enough signatures. They'll be on the May ballot. And really, they were behind a lot of the expensive opposition to Metro's previous transportation measure, which went down in a loss. So I think we have to expect that there will be opposition there and Opposition of the Portland Business Alliance is connected with opposition from the Oregonian newspaper. The publisher of that newspaper was recently the chairman of the board of the Portland Business Alliance and is a current member of the board. And although the paper always publishes, oh, this doesn't affect our coverage when they're writing articles, I think anybody who works for them can figure out what point of view might advance their career and which will not. So I would just want to take a moment to really thank those of you who work at KBU to make sure that we have alternative sources and free sources of information and media in this community because it makes a big difference. And I just wanted to add really quickly um, some, you know, internal TriMet pushback that I've been receiving just being in like committee spaces um, and is also a part of TriMet's um, campaign to get public support for the fare increase is a lot of push for their low income fare subsidy programs. And, you know, obviously, while those are essential to have and we need those for our community to have subsidized fare. In order to qualify for those programs, households have to meet 
income requirements below twice the amount of the federal poverty level. And those metrics just leave a ton of people out. And not only that, but the application process for getting on one of those subsidy programs is burdensome and inaccessible for many people. So that has really been being pushed by TriMet, but we really see that as a false solution. It's not something that actually helps our community. It's a way that TriMet is just wielding power and being manipulative. So I just wanted to mention that too, because that's been like a, a common pushback we've been receiving lately. Okay, great. I think we're about out of time. The moles will be certainly interested in following the campaign. And it sounds to me like it's a winnable campaign. And let's hope that we can have you on for a celebratory discussion uh, sometime <laughs> in, the, in the new year. Thanks very much, Mary King and Ellie Gluhusky, for joining us this morning to talk about this really important question. Thank Thanks you, so Patricia. much, Patricia. That was a clip from the song Bus Stop by the Hollies. Before that, Mary King and Ellie Gluhusky were speaking with me about making TriMet zero fare. Next up, book mole Larry Bolden reviews the novel Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned by crime writer Walter Mosley, published in 1997. As usual, I will be reading Larry's review for him. Most readers know of Walter Mosley via his masterful Easy Rollins mystery series. His faithful readers would no doubt hurry to get hold of a new book in that series, but my hunch is that Mosley wanted to speak with a different voice than the relatively well-off Easy Rollins, who has both money and muscles on his side. Instead, the hero of Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned is Socrates Fortlow, a man of the streets, a convicted murderer who spent 27 years in jail and has been out of prison and has lived in Watts for eight years. Like the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Sacco is a deep thinker and one who questions those around him. The philosopher Socrates says that his only claim to wisdom is that he knows that he knows nothing, and he sets out to expose those who make grand and unjustified claims to wisdom. He calls himself a gadfly, a kind of horsefly, that has attached himself to the flanks of the state, stinging with questions. To those who claim knowledge, he asks simply, What is knowledge? Just as he asks politicians, What is justice? What is good? Socrates of Watts, who lives in a two-room shack and works at a chain supermarket, is also a man who asks questions and then questions the answers he receives. Quote, We don't want nobody can't stand up to what's got to be done, Socrates said. And just what is that? Howard asked. What's the biggest problem a black man have? Socrates asked as if the answer was as plain as wallpaper. The police, said Howard. Socrates smiled. 
Yeah, yeah, it's always trouble on the street, and at home, too. But they ain't the problem, not really. So what is it, Stoney asked. Being a man, that's what. Standing up and saying what it is we want, and what it is we ain't gonna take. Say to who, Wright asked, to the cops? I don't believe in going to the cops over something like this here, Socrates said. A black man, no matter how bad he is, being brutalized by the cops is a hurt to all of us. Going to the cops over a brother is like asking for chains. End quote. There are 14 interlocked stories in this marvelous little book, and each is a kind of morality tale. Tales about what to do and what not to do. Like the historical Socrates, Sacco is trying to live a good life. In one of the chapters, Sacco runs into a young man who steals from the rich while dressed in a suit and tie, and then quickly covers his suit with overalls and becomes an invisible black man. Quote, I'm saying that this good life you talking about comes out of your own brother's house. Either you're going to steal from a man like me, or you're going to steal from a shop where I do my business. And every time I go in there, I'd be paying for security cameras and security guards and up-to-the-roof insurance that they got to pay off whatever people been stealing. And they're going to raise the prices higher and expletive to pay the bills with a little extra to pay us back for stealing. End quote. Along his ways, Socrates runs into a young boy who is perilously close to joining a gang because he needs street protection. Sacco lets the boy sleep in his shack, and he feeds him and tries to get him away from the neighborhood where he is in danger of being killed or killing others. Quote, Socrates thought about a promise he'd made, a murky pledge. He swore to himself that he'd never hurt another person except if he had to for self-preservation. He swore to try and do good if the chance came before him. That way, he could ease the evil deeds that he had perpetrated in the long evil life that he'd lived. End quote. In my not-so-humble judgment, I think Sacco is wiser than the Greek Socrates, who let the state convict him of a crime he did not commit, atheism and corrupting the youth, when he could have saved himself, instead leaving his wife and children to fend for themselves while he takes the hemlock. As for religion coming to the rescue, Socrates' aunt, Belandra Beaufort, tries to set young Sacco straight. Quote, God ain't nowhere near here, child. He's a million miles away, out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. And he ain't white like they say he is, neither. God's black? Little Socrates asked the tall, skinny woman. He was sitting in her lap, leaning against her bony breast. Nah, baby, she said sadly. He ain't black. If he was, there wouldn't be all this mess down here with us. Nah, God's blue. Blue? Uh-huh. Blue like the ocean. Blue. Sad and cold and far away like the sky is far and blue. You got to go a long, long way to get to God. And even if you get there, he might not say a thing, not a damn thing, End quote. 
It is no accident that Mosley chooses Socrates as the name for his new lead character. Mosley understands the dialectical process of Socrates, but unlike the historical Socrates, Mosley's character does not revel in his ignorance. He is an evangelist for good. I have been talking about a very wise man, Walter Mosley, and his novel, Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned. This is Patricia Kohlberg reading a book review by Larry Bolden for the Old Mole Variety Hour. That was, of course, Marvin Gaye with his classic tune, Inner City Blues. As we come to the end of the month in which we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. and approach the month in which we honor black history, Bill Resnick takes a moment with black activist and author Malik Mia to examine the state of black America. Significant gains in civil rights that were won through mass movements beginning in the 1940s have since been eroded in a well-documented backlash against the rise of black power and agency. Bill and Malik conclude by emphasizing the necessity of disrupting systems in order to win lasting gains. Here's Bill with Malik Mia. Hi, Malik Mia. Welcome to KABU. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being on your show, Bill. Malik Mia is a longtime black civil rights and revolutionary socialist activist, made his living as an aviation mechanic, co-wrote the books The Assassination of Malcolm X, also Angola, The Hidden Ministry of Angola's War, and also the National Black Independent Political Party, an important step for blacks and other American workers. He's now a contributing editor with the Journal Against the Current, a U.S. socialist magazine, and on the editorial advisory board of Lynx, International Journal of Socialist Renewal. He's published several pieces recently in Green Left Weekly and Against the Current. So, Malik, this month, January 12th, we're again celebrating the uh, federal holiday honoring Martin Luther King Jr., an event that ignites a uh, centerpiece of the um, perennial national reckoning on the civil rights revolution which came to, the reckoning came to evaluate the changing position of blacks in this country. But over time, it's become clear that we can't discuss being black in general because the fates of blacks have enormously diverged. Some blacks indeed have become the believed national heroes, not just cultural figures and sports players, also political actors like Barack Obama, Colin Powell, and of course, Martin Luther King Jr. himself. 
And additionally, significant numbers have entered the professions and upper middle class, though far less percentage than whites. With all those who gained, however, the considerable majority of blacks have experienced a decline in their life opportunities and standards of living, even more than whites and other people of color, as all working class families from every population fragment, their lives have become more precarious. And regardless of life position, however well-to-do and well-regarded, all black people are apprehensive about driving while black, indeed shopping while black. Nor, of course, has anti-black discrimination disappeared. Methodologically competent studies have found serious discrimination wherever it's examined in housing and medical care and education and law enforcement and getting jobs and wages, including affecting the black middle classes. Still, my final word of this introduction seems to me that over the years of tireless struggle, blacks have crucially gained citizenship. It is the right to complain, to challenge, to fight back, and sometimes to win. Anyway, you've been thinking about the ever more complicated position of blacks and the racism they face in this country, thinking and writing about it for quite a while. Start us off. Yes, I think it's it's important that we understand the role Martin Luther King played, not just in African-American history, but the, the country as a whole. This day was made a holiday, national holiday, by the federal government 36 years ago. King was assassinated in 1968, so it took some time between that and when it became a national holiday. But most of the government and a lot of officials, including black officials, prominent, they sort of sanitized what King really did and accomplished and what he represents. If you look back on what the Civil Rights Revolution was, it was fundamentally a mass movement led by blacks, included other people, whites, Asians, others who supported it, to bring fundamental change to the way the United States functioned for 200 years. And that's why it's correct to call it a revolution, because when the Civil Rights Act was adopted by Congress in 1965, and uh, with the Voting Rights uh, Act in 65, it changed the way blacks could function in the state, that is, in the country. Uh, Jim Crow's legal segregation in the South ended for the most part. It took several years to make that real, but for the most part. And that meant blacks, for the first time, could function as citizens. Not second-class citizens, but citizens. Now, how much that citizenship represented, you know, was going to be a fight. But King understood that you had to continue the fight, and that, that was his plan until he was assassinated. At a labor struggle, right, was a strike by sanitation workers where he was assassinated. So, to me, the King holiday is useful to step back and, and look at that, and then its impact, as you said, Bill, on all people in this country. It wasn't just African Americans, but Latin Americans, Asians, who began to push for their rights in the 1970s. A women, the women's movement, it grew up at the same period, gay rights movement. So these changes were very much linked to that civil rights movement. And, you know, you have to recognize King played a very prominent role in that. Now, it, even in that time period, it's important to recognize that there was a left wing of the civil rights movement, people who didn't think the system, that is the capitalist system, could ever bring full equality, people like Malcolm X and others. And that movement, and, and you know, they were critiques of the official civil rights movement, but at the same time, even the left wing recognized the role King played in the mass campaign because uh, it was understood in the broad left of the black left, I should say, that only mass struggle could bring change. Not electoral politics, 
not anything else. So it opened the door in the 1970s to what we call the, the, the divide in the black community between the educated and others who were able to join corporate society and also electoral politics, particularly the Democratic Party, run for office. So you had from a few hundred at most black elected officials in the 60s, mostly local officials, to now you have thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, and elected all over the country, even in the South. So that was a big change. But the problem was, as uh, you pointed out, and it's correct, that a lot of the people who joined these institutions, while speaking for the community that elected them, they didn't really fight for the working poor. That's the division that still exists. So you can have prominent blacks, including Obama becoming president, the first black woman on the Supreme Court. But at the same time, the gap, economic gap, is very wide. So that's the struggle. How do you bring up everyone, which would also mean bringing up everyone who's not black and recognize the main enemy is not whites, for example, but the system itself. You sort of anticipated my appreciation for the movement. Maybe we'll do more around in conclusion to this interview. Let's go double back to the position of the constant effort of black people and other people of color and some whites to struggle against racism, particularly racism that injures all black people, those on top of the lower, mostly spared it. It seems to me that one striking feature of American life now today is racism is sometimes obvious, like with the police frequently, but most of the time, and perhaps the most injurious is the concealed racism where the perpetrators may think of themselves as enlightened and thoughtful, having black friends and having the highest esteem for Winfrey and Tanya Rice and Colin Powell and Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and on and on and on, great heroes. Study after study shows how ubiquitous racism is in many, many decisions by people who would be shocked and disbelieve that, in fact, the decision was made on racial lines. That's a good point, and I'll explain it a little bit from my vantage point, because I think it gets to the heart of what, where the racism in the system itself and how it functions. Because the truth of the matter, what, what, what a lot of people call it institutional racism. It's built into the system and the unbiased racism, which you're describing, that people have, including liberals. And what that confirms is what the movement in the 60s understood. You can't just talk about it. You have to have laws that enforce it, force rights, like affirmative action, which doesn't exist anymore in this country. Affirmative action which was created in the late 60s, basically said you had to have quotas and goals, strict quotas and goals to make up for the 200 years of race, institutional racism. You couldn't just say, oh, we don't like this, and eventually it should change. You had to say, if you worked like I was in the airline industry, you had to have, have black pilots and black mechanics, and you had a certain time frame to get it done. If you just kept it at the way it was always, they would always say, well, there's no qualified people to take these jobs. But then once you said, no, to keep getting government contracts, you have to show us you can get 5% of blacks in these positions, not just janitors, or you lose the contract, it, it happened. It would happen. Okay, those kind of programs have been gutted. 
In universities like California, we don't even have any form of race can be used in admissions. So what's happened since they made that change 20 years ago, there's much fewer blacks and Latinos in the university systems. Okay, so that proves that when you use race and you set goals, you've got more people in the institution. So that's what we're facing now. The backlash against black whites and equality has led to the top blacks have no problem. Though they, they're affected too, but not the same way. People accept them. But you cannot miss why discrimination still happens in housing, not the same way as in the 50s. It still exists in jobs and opportunities for what I call the working class layers. And they can't make it because the fight by the institution, some people call it white supremacy or whatever, the state has made it harder and more difficult for that change. And because liberal whites will go along, they'll say, I don't like it, but they go along with it. <laughs> the change hasn't happened. So when the voting rights law was gutted by the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice Roberts, and they opened the door to getting rid of the 1965 laws, suddenly every state in the South and other states changed their laws to make it more difficult to vote. That's what happens when you don't have firm laws and rights protected. The rights are not about whether you like somebody. Rights are about making sure they're enforced. Once they're enforced, it can change people's minds. But if you don't do that, those on the far right can push back, and then the white liberals and others, including black liberals, will say, okay, we have to keep pushing in other means to get more protections. But it won't work. In the long run, you have to radically change the way the institutions exist, the laws exist, and if you don't, you will always face the backlash. Yeah, let me give one example, Molly, that was yes. striking to me, but there are many, many, many of them. In every institution, blacks seem to, despite the uh, surprise by the people who are working there, blacks seem to get inferior treatment of one kind or another. And that's true of medicine. It's true of child welfare decisions. It's particularly true of employment. As you pointed out, the people on top and the highly educated and the people with good manners and good teeth and the rest of it, good clothing, and the sort of effective, uh, charming selves. Yes. But when there's a call for on all kinds of lesser positions by companies or in small places for uh, people to send their resumes that will be then evaluated and if a person looks promising, given an interview, well, those resumes come in, the researchers do the same exact resume without pictures for people identifiably with a white name and people identifying that have a black sounding name, but they're identical resumes. And yet the white people with a white name get called back for an in-person interview. That is, they might be considered for employment much more often. And that's so telling. Blackness just has its, especially if you aren't in a top position, it becomes a huge burden and, and difficulty for the majority of the black population. And that's true. But the point I would emphasize is that we made gains against that in the 70s and 80s, especially in the 1970s, when we had different forms of positive action or affirmative action. Employers and offices that wouldn't hire blacks 
under the pressure of the movement they did. Today, that pressure is being taken off, so it's even less for anyone. That was the point about affirmative action I was trying to make. So when you had laws to say you had to take some steps, then you made some progress. Never never what it should be. <laughs> never met the percentage of black African Americans who were in the population of a city. It definitely never was true in the South, ever. But, you know, you made gains. Today, when you have the pushback, there's reversals. Like I said, I gave my example of California. So when you have the, and California is considered one of the most liberal states. So think of other states, the reversals. So if you don't have the laws, you don't make the things that are less pressure on the institutions, which are still run by whites. I'll give you another example that everyone can understand. Professional sports. The NFL, the football league, is like 70% black, but the management is almost all white. They won't even put many blacks as head coaches because who hires them? The owners who are white. So even where you have a situation where people may be paid decently and make a lot of money if they're stars, who makes decisions on the ownership of the teams that are not the players? You know, so it's across the board. It's across the board, this problem. But if you're a working class black and you have no legal protections, it's very hard. It's very hard to make progress. And that's part of the reversals. I mean, people don't want to hear it, but I'll say it anyway. After the end of Reconstruction and during Reconstruction at the end of the Civil War, there were elected black officials in many southern states. There were more blacks in different skilled jobs. As soon as the white backlash and supremacists took power by violence in the South and up North, those positions were eliminated. And by the turn of the century, I mean, in the 1900s, those jobs were gone. Lynchings became strong again, and black people were put back in a box. You know, not slavery, but in a very bad situation. It took another 65, 70 years to reverse that. And now we're in a new cycle where the same thing is happening. Now, people say it's not impossible. It won't happen. Well, it won't happen that we go back to Jim Crow because it's not useful. But you can make it very difficult to make gains if you're a poor working class person in this country anywhere. That can happen even if you have a black elite. And then the black elite will have less opportunities too because they need pressure from below. This is Bill Resnick for the Old Mall Variety Hour talking to Malik Mia. A longtime black civil rights and revolutionary socialist activist made his living as an aviation mechanic, co-wrote and edited three books. He's now publishing articles and left journals and webzines, including Against the Current, uh, Links, International Journal of Socialist Renewal, and the Green Left Weekly. We're going to have to, because of time, omit discussing the uh, particularly injurious consequences for blacks of the way the criminal justice system is organized and makes decisions. It's truly a criminal, just a criminal justice system. And particularly for young blacks who are put in juvie by the police, especially in the big cities, for most any infraction, particularly if it's accompanied by challenging the police crimes and quotes for which white kids in the suburbs are taken right to their parents. Cops would be fired in the suburbs if they took teens into the criminal justice system for as little as marijuana use or many, many offenses that are dangerous. Vandalism, speeding in cars, drinking in cars, they go right to the homes and drop them off. Very few white kids in the suburbs get handled uh, and they don't have to fear about being shot for just no. being on the street. That's, they really don't. You know, these 
the police are very, very, very understanding of white men who are carrying guns, but they shoot black guys who come reach into their pocket maybe to uh, take out their driver's license. Yeah. Yes, the, the ubiquitous racism in the police Well, and that's force. the institution of policing. Institution yeah. of policing, because policing, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, Latino, Asian, you're in the system. So all of them treat black people the same way because they're told to. Now, when they're not on the police force, that may not be the case. But you see black cops are just as brutal toward other black young men as the white cops. They'll shoot them too. And that's just the reality because the institution of blue means that's priority. Yeah. So it's important to understand the Black Lives Movement, when it existed around George Floyd, its power was not that blacks were doing it. That's always been true. But it won the hearts and minds of whites, Asians, Latinos, and around the world. That's why it was so strong. Now we're back to work with the Democrat and the president. The only people who protest primarily is from the black community. You get allies, but not like we saw in 2020. There's a lot more to talk about, Malik, but I'm afraid we have, we're running out of time. I think it should be pointed out that both the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, mostly, not all of them, see the black poor as having missed the opportunity to make it in this opportunity society, as if everybody can, in fact, if you work hard enough, you can become a professional, become an, uh, an electrician. I'm not sure how you made it as a mechanic. It must have been a big struggle for you on aviation. Well, fortunately, they were other, as I said, because of the 70s, I became a mechanic in the 80s. But because of what had went before, it was easier for someone like me to get the job, whereas it wouldn't have been 20 years before that or 10 years before that. So the movement opened the door for people who they wouldn't have hired to be hired. Without the movement, you get no change. That's the fundamental yeah. point I would say. Without mass movement, you will get no change. <laughs> okay, let me reiterate something you said at the beginning of the interview an appreciation for King and uh, and the civil rights struggle. And uh, you pointed out it triggered a democratic revolution. My sense is that the 60s should be seen as a great insurrection across this country and against its former, its authority patterns, challenging the oppression of all the subordinates, youth, women, other people of color, unusual-looking people, sexual gender minorities, those getting disabled before they got old. Indeed, blacks took most of the punishment. Still, it seems to me, as you pointed out, blacks also won a lot, winning, in fact, in effect, the capacity to challenge and fight back and develop and tell their own story. Malik, you get the last word. Yes. Well, I just want to emphasize, again, the power of the civil rights movement and revolution in the 60s, which really began in the 40s, but the power of that movement was it knew African-Americans had very few rights in this country. So they knew you had to go to the street. Civil disobedience was one of its hallmarks. But there was an understanding that only disrupting the system would lead to legal changes. And that's what happened. And when King, after the laws were passed, King didn't stop. He started talking about the Vietnam War at the time. He talked about other issues. He talked about why... Whatever happened to African-Americans happens to all workers, poor whites as well. So that there was an understanding that was greater then than we see today in a lot of ways. 
But that history is still there. It can be understood. And many, many more activists need to recapture those lessons and continue to fight today. Alec, Mia, thanks a lot for talking to us today. All right, Bill. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That was Bill Resnick and Malik Mia examining the current state of civil rights for African Americans. That's a wrap for our show today. I want to thank Moles, Larry Bolden, and Bill Resnick for their contributions, and John Nelson for his editing assistance. Thanks as well to our guests, Mary King, Ellie Gluhusky, and Malik Mia. Our gratitude always goes out to the KBU staff for making everything work. I'm Patricia Kulberg, and I've been your host for this morning's edition of the Old Mole Variety Hour. Catch us again next Monday morning when we'll bring you an update on the ongoing effort to shut down the Zenith crude oil operation, the historic demise of activist public health in the U.S., and more. I'm going to close out the show today with a song by Lauren Hill called Black Rage. It's set to the classic tune of My Favorite Things. Thanks for listening. Black rage is founded on two-thirds a person. Great things and beatings and suffering and worsens. Black human packages tied up in strings. Black rage can come from all these kinds of things. Black rage is founded on blatant denial. Squeeze economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is found in all wounds in the soul. When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds.